Hey, welcome everybody. This is Euronurse.com. Sorry for the delay. Always a, you can run into little technical difficulties, but we've got our guest speaker, which is the main thing. Uh, my name is Vic Sidis, and you're at Euronurse. We meet every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. If you're watching this on YouTube, great. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and that like button. Hey, if this is your first time watching us, go and visit our website at Euronurse.com where you can learn more about the program. Um, and how you can become a part of the program and get involved in the program. Also, it's the best place to go if you want to watch past episodes. We have all the episodes available on demand, and they're all listed on our website. And we've got 30 episodes now, so we're really doing great. Uh, couldn't have done it without all of the help I've had, so it's been a pleasure doing all these episodes. And if you want to become even more involved in the program and help to support it, be sure to go to our sponsor this info button and push that button and you can become one of our sponsors. As always, we do questions and answers. Uh, we start off with some questions at the beginning of the program. So if you've got anything you want to post, go ahead and post it. We've got our pa expert panelists available to take those questions. And I'm going to take a little shout out here for a little help wanted. You know, we do 52 episodes a year, so we've got a lot of topics that we need to cover, and it never hurts to have new panelists join us. So if you want to get involved in the show, maybe you thought about speaking, um, but you're a little nervous about getting on public speaking. Well, this is a good opportunity to try that uh, out here on a little less threatening where you don't have a big audience to look at, just your camera. So go ahead and hit that join button, and what it'll do is bring you to a form that you fill out, fill that form out, and I'll get in touch with you. We can talk about some ideas of shows that you might want to be a presenter as. And we've got a lot of topics that people are looking for. Um, Peroni's disease, renal cancer, genetic urine cultures, stone disease, PTNS, suprapubic catheter changes, voiding trials, urethral bulking agents, um, all sorts of things that you can talk about. Anything that you want to do, that's all game. And today we've got our great speaker, Dr. Jay Kim on. He's going to be talking about sling surgery for urinary incontinence. And let's go ahead and bring our panelists on board here. And uh, welcome for those of you that are new to the show and don't know who I am. Again, Vic Sinise. I'm the host of the program. Been involved in urology nursing for over 30 years. And uh, let's bring our guest panelists to do their own introductions. Jay, you want to tell them a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Jay Kim. I'm a urologist. I've been practicing urology in Chicago suburbs um, for the past 20 some years, uh, along with Vic, more than 20, what, 23 years now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I specialized in uh, female urology and reconstructive urology. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here and thank you for your invitation. Yeah, and that's exactly what we're looking for, is to have the, the real experts talk about this. Uh, Lori, a little bit of an introduction. Good morning. My name is Lori Atkinson. I'm a certified urology registered nurse. I've been in a urology nurse for 24 years now, um, and I currently work for Northwestern Medicine in Illinois at Delnor in Geneva and Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield. Hey, great. All righty, I'm going to do, 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 bring this one up to spotlight. Uh, we did have a question coming from the audience. And again, audience, you can submit your questions ahead of time. Uh, this one was sent in by Monica Friedman from California. And we're going to, this is a question we'll tackle. Uh, occasionally, patient who sees a urologist in his hometown was visiting San Francisco and had a blocked catheter. Patient has new suprapubic tube placement on one's three. 
and his catheter gets clogged every two weeks. I changed the catheter and the cath autopsy showed entire length had sediment buildup. Eyelets were clear. Patient uses a 16 French latex. I know silicone has a larger lumen, so I thought I would suggest trying one. Also, patient does tobramycin irrigations and saline irrigations daily. Wow, everything you can think of almost. Patient taking oxybutynin for spasms. Patient's uh, active, golf, running, hiking, uses a stat lock on his thigh, but does not tape the catheter down, slips it underneath his brief slash underwear. Patient arrived with broken stat locks, so had not been using one for a few days. And then this is the questions that were um, were put out here by this, uh, um, by Monica. Any ideas why so much sediment? Panelist, feel free to jump in there. Any thoughts on what's causing sedimentation? I know I, I've, we've covered uh, some subjects and we know that sometimes with these patients that have urinary tract infections, they'll form sediment uh, in there. We talked about some biofilms that can form inside the catheter that can lead to that uh, sediment forming. Um, interesting, some of the things that this uh, nurse has done trying to utilize tobramycin irrigations, et cetera. Um, so silicon catheter may be a, a, an answer too to help. Any thoughts anywhere along the line from our panelists? So well, I, um, I guess we can, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Go ahead, Lori. Um, so I guess we can go back to the basics and I, you mentioned that the, the patient was very active. I guess the question is, is that patient drinking plenty of fluids to prevent some of that? Ah, that was the one thing that we didn't thought think of, the extra fluids. And Jay, you had a thought? You know, um, I think that this is actually something that we see occasionally in our practice too. Um, I think uh, it's obvious that uh, that when you have an external catheter, whether it's a urethral catheter or a suprapubic catheter, um, it's basically going to colonize the bladder, you know, after a relatively a short period of time. So we have to understand the fact that, you know, now it's no longer a sterile system. And um, there are going to be certain types of bacteria that may actually uh, facilitate um, changing of the urinary pH. Sometimes that can also uh, increase the risk of stone. So it actually may not be a bad idea to obtain a urine culture. In this type of setting, I don't think it's a wasted effort. It's probably not a bad idea to obtain the urine culture and see what type of bacteria is found in his uh, bladder as a result of, uh, you know, chronic catheterization and, um, and also obtaining uh, the urine pH and, uh, and uh, try to actually correct those type of other extraneous factors that could be contributing to the stone formation. Yeah, good thoughts. And from our audience, we have Dr. John Lin uh, said dietary would be a first place to consider. I would also schedule a patient for cystoscopy and get renal ultrasound. I think probably looking for bladder stones, et cetera, that might be causing some of that. Uh, Paul Wagner said some people just make a lot of sediment, would use a silicon catheter, bigger cath, and get a KUB. Um, she also said he probably had a cysto when the suprapubic tube was placed. Not sure if it was a if it was a suprapubic tube uh, again. Um, I use uh, John Dr. John Lynn says I use Irisep, which may help decrease colonization instead of Tobra and saline. 
excuse me. Um, for those of you that are not familiar with Irisep, which is probably most of us, because I wasn't, it's a an interesting product. And I have reached out to this manufacturer and they're uh, looking to get a speaker to talk for Euronurse on this new product that we can try called Eurocept. Uh, so yeah, some some great uh, great thoughts. Um, the next question that I, I see here is any downside to a silicon catheter? So I uh, I'll take the start at that. The one thing I don't like about the silicon catheter is the stiffness of it. It's a little harder on patients when you're placing it. It's a little stiffer, and when you collapse the balloon, we've talked about how those little uh, folds start to, you know, at the end of the balloon, it gets like little tiny folds in it. Um, but we did have somebody at one of our programs mention a trick they used by putting just a little bit of water back in the balloon to smooth it out. So I think that uh, the silicon, we know it has a larger lumen and probably makes sense to be uh, a better catheter choice. Um, any thoughts from any of the panelists on silicon? Lori, any thoughts on that? No, that's, I think that you covered what I was going to say about the, you know, I, I don't care for them at all. Um, I think they're more uncomfortable, like you said, stiffer. And, you know, especially with new nurses, when you're deflating that balloon and pulling it out, and especially with a suprapubic catheter, it gets stuck. And they think, oh my gosh, something's wrong. I can't, but you really have to kind of twist it and kind of pull it out kind of hard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Melanie Wadlington gives a comment here. We have prescribed potassium citrate TID when all else fails. We've had tremendous success with this medication. So that's a, a good thought. Um, and John Lynn, again, uh, coming in, not all silicons are stiff. And remember the duet uh, conversation we had um, a couple of weeks ago. That's another option to look at a duet catheter is, is a solution to that problem. So let's see here. Literature tells us that the only prevention is a silicon catheter. So I guess a evidence-based that would be one of the things that we'd want to look at. Um, let's get to the next question that she had. So would taping the cat down next to the site so less movement help decrease sediment? I'm thinking the contact with the bladder lining may be causing more slothing. So uh, again, that duet system may be the answer to that because it's got that other second catheter balloon that's hitting against the catheter rather than a sharp tip of a catheter, uh, typical catheter. So as far as the taping down, increasing sediment, I don't know what's anybody have a thought on that. Uh, Jay, do you think that that might lead to more or less sediment? You know, that's interesting. I've, I've never actually thought of it as a uh, potential um, contribution to the, uh, my only concern is that, you know, especially in male patients, um, even a slightly increased tension of the catheter can very easily cause erosion of the, the urethral meatus. So, you know, I always make a point of uh, leaving uh, extra redundant length in order to minimize any uh, catheter pressure on the urethra because, you know, um, you, you know how easy it is for male to sustain you know, partial or pretty severe extensive erosion of the urethra. So I would be very careful about uh, minimizing the tension of the catheter by taping in such fashion. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. Um, I had a call, my brother, uh, my youngest brother is a nurse and he does hospice. And he goes, hey, I got a quick urology consult for you. And I says, okay. 
And of course he works nights. So it's like 10 o'clock at night. He's calling me up. He says, patient, I just went to see his, his penis was fine. I come in and it's now the tip of it's filleted down to just below the head of the penis. And I said, very common. And this is, you know, somebody who's in hospice. So I'm sure his nutritional status is the greatest, but I said, you know, taping it, keeping it. So it's not always pulling to the same spot may help prevent that. But I said, it's very common with long-term Foley catheters. So even, even uh, at the middle of the night, you can sometimes get these telephone consults, right? All right. My favorites. Uh, so that was my favorite story, by the way. I just brought that into to line how how I get to fall asleep some nights. Uh, but yeah, and for those of you that have my number besides my brother, don't call it because it will block you. <laughs> All righty, Lori, any favorite story today? You know me; I always have a favorite story. Every week, there's something that happens, and so the one story that I have that happened this week was there's a patient who's 43 years old. Um, it was severe dementia. He had cognitive, cognitive developmental issues. So he was nonverbal. He came in just for a catheter change. The mom was with him, didn't speak English, um, but we had gotten an interpreter, of course, and, and she said that his penis has been swollen. Okay, no problem. We'll take a look at it. So I lift up the sheet and the first thing I said was, is he circumcised? Nope. His penis was so swollen from paraphimosis because she said she had pulled the foreskin down the day before and couldn't get it back over. So immediately I ended up wrapping it pretty tight with just some, you know, gauze um, and tried to get that fluid to, to obviously move from where it was swollen to kind of the, the shaft of the penis. So I'm holding it for probably, I don't know, five minutes or so. Try it. Can't reduce it try it again, can't reduce it. Finally called the doctor and, and this poor guy, since he's not verbal, you can tell he was in pain, but he couldn't say it. And, you, and if you've experienced paraphimosis before, that is not a fun procedure to have it reduced. It's extremely painful. So called the doctor and he tried, he can't do it. Poor guy ended up, we did an, they did an emergency circumcision on him. Um, it wasn't real emergent because we tried to get it done right away, but unfortunately he tested co uh, positive for COVID. And so they had to wait until the last, yeah. So, I mean, we did take the catheter out. I guess it's important to take the catheter out if you're trying to reduce it to get rid of, you know, anything that might be in the way. So we kept his catheter out, but he ended up being fine and he got circumcised and he's doing well. Yeah, that's a good reminder. Uh, last couple of comments here on that question. Boy, that, that was a great question. We, uh, thanks Monica for spurring all that activity. Uh, Paula says, why not use a belly bag for this very active patient? And yep, I agree. That's a great option. And John Lynn says avoiding alcohol, acidic juices, and caffeine can all be dehydrating and cause more incrustation. Yeah, that's, uh, another thing we didn't mention. So again, dietary, I think was one of the things that we early on talked about and i agree but boy giving up alcohol and caffeine <laughs> that's a tough one all right i think we're going to get on to our regular show uh, uh jay do you have slides that you're using uh, no i'm not okay and i'm just going to spotlight you here and we'll go ahead and let you take off and we're, tell us everything you know about slings <laughs> well i'm not going to make it 
that easy for you, uh, Vic, because uh, you and I have worked together for a long time and uh, you've done probably thousands of Eurodynamic studies for, for us. So I'm gonna actually throw the question right back at you and uh, I'm gonna ask you, what is your definition of uh, stress incontinence? Ah, okay. So you're gonna put me to work. And, and Lori also does your dynamics, so uh, we, she can chime in too if she wants. But, you know, we do that, uh, again, as uh, Dr. Kim mentioned, we do your dynamics, and I've done a lot of your dynamics. So my definition is when you can uh, demonstrate leakage by increasing pressure in the bladder, and often that's either done by Valsalva, which is my preference, just to have patient bearing down and watching what the number is that rises and what marking that point where it occurs, or having if it doesn't leak, you know, on a very low level, a higher level by having them cough. And then again, I started kind of like clearing your throat cough to a more strong cough to produce that leakage. And that would be a stress leak versus, you know, patient who leaks because of an overactive bladder where they suddenly get a contraction of the detrusor, which you can also see on your dynamics. The really good test if you know what you're doing. Lori, do you have any other thoughts on stress incontinence? I'm not going to be the only one on the line. No, obviously it's, you know, when somebody has increased pressure in the abdomen, um, such as the coughing, the sneezing, the jumping, things like that, obviously with pretty weak pelvic floor muscles. Um, I do the same thing. I do the coughs, the, you know, I'll do a, a mild, medium, large, um, we'll do the Vesalva if we can't get them leak, which, you know, Vic is very hard to do sometimes because you can't have the patient jumping on the trampoline, but we'll, you know, have them stand, spread their legs, squat, cough really hard. And, and of course it's really hard to keep the sensors in at that point too. So they have to be taped really, really well. All right. Very good. How do we do Jay? Well, I think that, uh, that you, uh, um, included many different aspects of the definition. You know, uh, you mentioned briefly about the Eurodynamic uh, criteria. You also mentioned some clinical features. From uh, my perspective, I just wanted to kind of keep it uh, straightforward. And, you know, uh, when I see a patient who comes into my office with, quote, bladder control problems, then uh, a couple of things that I ask, uh, you know, the questions that I ask is to find out basically whether they have urinary incontinence associated with physical activities. And, and also, um, to be more specific, um, do they have any leakage with coughing, sneezing, um, any type of lifting, you know, physical activities? Um, and uh, we also have to make sure that oftentimes uh, things make sense for us, but for patients who's going through these symptoms, sometimes it is hard for them to give us clear-cut information that will lead us to the diagnosis of stress versus urgent continence. And oftentimes they happen together. So it is very important for us to keep an open mind and ask them questions to see whether they have stress, urge, or combination of both. And the information that tells me the most information is if they have certain um, history, such as um, multiple pregnancies, um, deliveries, especially if there's any complications related to deliveries, their hormonal status, their previous surgical histories, if they've had any type of uh, surgery, especially things like hysterectomy, you know, those are all very strong risk factors 
for stress urinary incontinence. And then obviously the physical examination component uh, will help you to see if there's any component of stress urinary incontinence. So in my practice, I don't necessarily, you know, uh, order urodynamic studies on everyone who has stress incontinence. In fact, if uh, the history and physical examination is pretty clear cut, I don't necessarily ask for a urodynamic assessment. Now, it is also very important to remember that men can have stress incontinence as well, especially after having radiation therapy or uh, especially the surgeries for prostate, whether it be enlarged prostate that's treated with TORP or laser surgeries or removal of the prostate you know, for uh, cancer treatment. And these are type of conditions that are also known to be associated with stress incontinence in men. And oftentimes there are many parallels in treatment options for both men and women with stress urinary incontinence. So, um, so, so uh, in, in, a, in a short answer to my original question to you, um, to me, stress urinary incontinence is involuntary loss of urine associated with physical activities or coughing or sneezing or lifting or anything that increases the intra-abdominal pressure that exceeds the resistance that's created by the sphincteric muscles in men and women. Great definition. I, I think you kind of alluded to something that we call eyeball urodynamics where you just do the physical exams can show you what stress is there, sometimes avoiding the need for a, a definite urodynamics, formal urodynamics. So what next should we talk about? Uh, well, we do want to know about slings. So how do you evaluate a patient if you're uh, you know, considering sling surgery and why you would do it, why you wouldn't do it? Who was a good candidate? Oh, okay. Well, uh, first of all, um, you know, obviously what we're talking about is a quality of life issue. So I don't necessarily believe that everyone who has stress urinary incontinence actually requires, you know, active treatment. Um, you know, uh, there's a, a varying degree of incontinence and um, some people may be perfectly fine with uh, use of one pad and they'd rather uh, continue to do that rather than having physical therapies or committing more time to pelvic floor exercise. But certainly uh, uh, many people may not be interested in um, having a surgery, but at the same time, another person who has exactly the same degree of incontinence may be completely devastated by it. So we have to keep in mind that there's no set of criteria that will uh, best assign different patients to different treatment options. In fact, I think that we have to really first make sure that we understand what is the expectation of the patient. It's their quality of life. And so uh, first we have to understand that there are options. And number two, if I'm in the process of considering uh, different type of treatment options, my usual um, approach is always try uh, least invasive treatment options first. So if a person does clearly have um, stress urinary incontinence and physical examinations showing uh, urethral hypermobility and objective evidence of incontinence, stress incontinence, then usually what I first uh, uh, recommend 
is for my patients to consider pelvic floor exercise or physical therapy regimen. You know, um, you know, Kegels exercise as originally described by Dr. Kegels is very different from what we recommend. You know, Kegels exercise was uh, described and recommended to patients by inserting uh, metal vaginal cone into the vagina of the patients. This is what Dr. Kegels did. And asking patients to contract their pelvic floor muscles to prevent those uh, vaginal weight from sliding out. And, and so the it forced the patients to recruit the proper muscles to try to keep the vaginal weight in the vagina and prevent it from falling down. But that really requires local stimulation that helps patients to recruit the right muscles. But how often do we do that these days? We really don't. You know, we just kind of explain, you know, this is what you should do and give them instructions. But studies have clearly shown that more than half of the people who do pelvic floor exercise or Kegels exercise end up contracting their inner thigh muscles or lower abdominal muscles. So uh, one thing that we have to do is, um, you know, uh, be willing to recommend um, pelvic floor exercise regimen. But if we do that, we have to spend time to explain to them how they should do it with either informational materials or, or maybe even referring them to um, physical therapists. There are excellent uh, uh, physical therapy programs out there and people who are motivated and interested and have training to teach our patients to do that. And then um, the, the next option is that for people who, uh, want, who have already done the pelvic floor exercise, you know, there are different uh, literature data that uh, indicates how successful pelvic floor exercise is. Some not so good, some better than the others, but I've read anywhere between 20 to 40%. So um, we have to have right expectation of how likely the patients will improve with pelvic floor exercise regimen. So if the patients have done the pelvic floor exercise and they continue to have incontinence, or if uh, the patients experience very severe incontinence and they're interested in proceeding to the procedure and something that is definitive so they can move on, then um, I've done many different things, but you know, recently I've been doing more uh, of um, mid-urethral sling procedures. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, that is one treatment option that really has arrived uh, to the point where we can act, expect excellent uh, outcome with very minimal risk of complications. For those that might not be familiar with mid-urethral sling, can you explain the difference between placement of the slings? Uh, sure. Um, you know, if you go back to the history of anti-incontinence surgery in American medicine, you know, it tracks back about 150 years. You know, even... Uh, in the 1860s, there are literatures about what type of sutures the doctors were proposing to use. Some people were, you know, proposing metallic wires as sutures to lift up the bladder neck. Um, you know, and uh, when I first began my practice uh, 30 years ago, you know, we were doing a lot of retropubic uh, procedures like Marshall Marchetti, um, birch bladder neck suspensions. Um, we were also doing pubovaginal slings with autologous um, rectus fascia and the Gore-Tex. And I remember at Chicago Urologic, 
many, many years ago when uh, some of my colleagues who still practice actually now, uh, first presented using synthetic graft under the urethra, boy, he was roundly criticized by everyone, including the, uh, the expert, uh, the speaker who was invited for that meeting. And the time has sure changed. So um, I think that uh, in my personal experience, I first began the, uh, the sling procedure by harvesting uh, the person's uh, rectus fascia for pubovaginal sling. And um, you know that requires making a small incision in the suprapubic area and harvesting roughly about two by six, two by eight centimeter uh, rectus fascia harvested and then reclose the uh, rectus fascia and then uh, use heavy sutures to uh, you know, provide tension when these uh, rectus fascia is placed under uh, the bladder neck. And when the pubovaginal swing was being performed, um, the, the, the practice, uh, common practice was to place the sling materials in the proximal urethra or under the bladder neck. And so these procedures were typically uh, performed as an overnight hospital stay because you know, there was uh, more exploration, uh, more recovery to be, uh, to be done. And many of the patients did experience post-operative urinary retention. So that was probably about 25, 30 years ago. And then gradually we moved from uh, autologous to um, uh, materials like uh, porcine dermis, or cadaveric fascia lata. And I think that those use of those graft materials actually uh, allowed us to bypass autologous harvesting, which definitely cut down the amount of surgery time and invasiveness of the surgery. And then um, eventually uh, Gore-Tex was being used along with other types of synthetic materials. But when polypropylene mesh use, uh, you know, demonstrated excellent outcome in Europe, um, you know, uh, more uh, of uh, procedures were being performed with this current mesh, you know, materials, whether it be, due, you know, from the retropubic approach or transoptrator approach or uh, single incision, uh, you know, slings that are now being performed by many doctors. And um, I think uh, when uh, Sparks, Monarch, you know, uh, TOT, these uh, procedures were beginning to use these synthetic graphs. Um, we began to understand, especially with the data from Europe, that uh, they were providing, you know, excellent uh, surgical outcome while minimizing, you know, complications. And uh, for the past 15 years, I have to say that uh, almost all of my procedures have been done through the transoptrator route. But now there are you know, uh, very promising approaches like single incision technique, I think using the same polypropylene mesh tapes, I think it has a very, um, uh, you know, promising uh, impression. And um, uh, I think that at this point, um, I continue to use primarily polypropylene mesh slings. Oh, the, the question that you mentioned with the mid urethral Mm -hmm. uh, sling. And, and uh, I think I briefly mentioned when I was talking about the uh, pubovaginal sling, we were taught to place the, uh, the sling material near the bladder neck. 
to really uh, you know provide uh, uh, extrinsic pressure. But uh, subsequent European studies clearly show that they had uh, excellent outcome by trying to place this uh, sling materials at the level of mid urethra. And, uh, and the, the curvature of the spiral hooks of these uh, uh, sling uh, kits usually are designed so that, that the users will be able to place, place the sling grafts in the, in the mid urethra uh, to provide maximal uh, benefit while minimizing the risk of urinary retention. We had a couple of questions come in on the rectus, harvesting rectus fascia. Um, one of our, our attendees wants to know how you do that. And, uh, another attendees saying, can you discuss how much pain is involved with a patient who undergoes that rectal fascist harvesting? Uh, actually what, what I meant by was, uh, 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 rectus fascia. So rectus fascia is basically when you make, uh, abdominal incision and carefully separate the subcutaneous fat, um, the, the, the very uh, consistent and thin, but very, very strong layer of connective tissue overlying the rectus muscle in the lower abdomen. Uh, that's uh, something that uh, can be pretty easily um, harvested. And, um, and then once we harvest, as I mentioned, about two by six or two by eight centimeter uh, graft that we will use to place under the urethra and provide suspension, then we would actually use permanent sutures to reapproximate the defect that we created in the rectus fascia in the lower abdomen. And then we have to close the uh, you know, overlying uh, skin. So that certainly added to the surgery time as well as uh, the discomfort. So in the past, when we were doing sling procedures, it was definitely uh, a major enough that patients uh, ended up uh, getting the procedure done as, uh, as an overnight hospital surgery with indwelling Foley catheter overnight. We're talking long time ago. Yeah. And, and a TOT sling would be how long of an operation would, would you say? Well, transarterator sling, uh, mid-urethral sling surgery, you know, typically in skilled hands should take maybe about 15 to 20 minutes. And um, because there's no um, abdominal, lower abdominal incision to harvest any fascia. And the, the only um, incisions that you create during the surgery is two small puncture uh, sites in the medial aspect of the inner thigh. And then one about 1.5 centimeter um, opening uh, at the level of mid urethra. So it's a very small, uh, you know, there are very small incisions and very, very easily uh, approachable, even in, you know, heavy set patients. And, um, and uh, you know, the patients you, uh, almost always go home uh, the same day um, and we give our patients a trial avoid. So, you know, um, it's uh, pretty much uh, consistently an outpatient procedure now. How much pain relief do they require when they go home? Well, you know, actually, um, the pain issue is one of the issues that uh, have have raised interest in other experts, um, especially I think that in younger patients who have more muscle mass in the inner thigh, um, I think uh, younger patients tend to have more pain than, say, elderly patients who are maybe in their 60s or 70s. I shouldn't say elderly for somebody who's in here. 
in, in their 60s. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, people who have less muscle mass in the inner thigh tend to have far less pain. But younger people, um, I noticed, have more discomfort or the uh, perforation that we perform at the time of the, uh, you know, um, when we place the hook uh, through the transoptrator route, we have to uh, penetrate through some of the muscle fibers and uh, we have to penetrate through the obturator membrane to get into the retropubic space. And that puncture can actually, in some patients, cause pretty significant discomfort for maybe, you know, uh, up to about a month or so. So we have to be very careful uh, to make sure that we know where we're going, make sure that we are directing the tip of the, the needles in a, in a proper fashion to minimize uh, trauma as much as possible. We did get a comment from one of our attendees saying, yeah, it's painful. <laughs> so there is some pain, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about, you know, we talk about mesh. And if you look up a mesh sling in Google, if you Google it, the first thing you get on the list is lawyers. So we know that there's been yes. a lot of lawsuits involved with slings. How does the sling that you typically use compare to the ones that are being, you know, litigated constantly? Well, I think that this is my purely uh, subjective personal opinion, but I don't think that uh, mesh itself, you know, is was a, such a uh, bad thing. I think that the, the indication and also the way it was propagated among the profession was probably just as um, important because, you know, it's the same polypropylene mesh that's being used in general surgery for repair of, you know, hernias. Uh, there's really nothing inherent about the mesh itself, I don't think. Uh, it's just that when mesh was being introduced, and I remember, you know, I had been doing uh, transvaginal uh, pelvic uh, prolapse repairs for years using different materials, porcine der dermis, uh, autologous uh, tissues, sometimes, uh, you know, cadaveric fascia lattice and things like that. And when, uh, when that mesh with the surgical kits for complicated pelvic prolapse came out, the way it was um, introduced was very aggressive um, and, uh, you know, I think that many people who had no, you know, previous training were talked into gaining enough confidence to do these type of procedures. And I think that uh, it didn't take very much time for some disasters to take place. And yeah. then after um, uh, the unfortunate uh, wave of complications, people began to equate mesh with bad outcome, even though uh, we were always using the same type of mesh material for the suburethral sling. It's the, basically the same uh, polypropylene mesh that we use, but uh, we, have to, we had to explain that to every patient who had stress urinary incontinence. And whenever we talked about, quote, sling, that was actually equated with the sling procedures for, you know, cystocele or rectocele and things like that. So, Fortunately, the AUA and um, the, uh, the, you know, um, AUGS, uh, the female, uh, the urogynecologists, uh, the, the professional societies have clearly come out to mention that uh, use of polypropylene mesh for suburethral sling is essentially a different surgery than pelvic prolapse surgery. And the data is definitely there to support that. 
And so um, I think that that issue has been pretty much settled, but I still get asked that question from different patients. So I have to you know, spend the extra time to explain and make sure that the patients understand and they are um, confident that the treatment is going to help. So the questions are, are coming in like crazy here. You're really stimulating a lot of people's curiosity. So uh, I'm gonna go through some of the questions from the audience if you don't mind. Besides urinary retention, what are the most com what are most complications of these sling surgeries? Any post-op signs or symptoms that nurses should be alert for? Okay, so uh, that is a very good question. Um, I think that uh, um, that whenever you put any type of uh, you know, foreign material, you have to be careful about the fact that you know even if you do the surgery correctly. And even if you use the same technique in different people, sometimes you get different outcomes. You know, for instance, if you put um, the, the sling material in an elderly patient who have um, varying degrees of atrophic vaginitis, you know that you're dealing with vaginal tissue that is very thin and very, have very low margin of error. And oftentimes when you're actually dissecting to create a space between the inner aspect of the vaginal wall and the urethra where you want to place the tape, even if you do everything correctly, sometimes these fibers or, or strands of the sling materials can penetrate through the thinned vaginal epithelium. And over time, the patients may actually experience some degree of vaginal irritation because of these tiny strands of sling materials penetrating mm -hmm. through. So, um, I don't necessarily um, place uh, everyone uh, on estrogen, but I think that in some patients, I definitely think that they should be advised to uh, start using uh, vaginal estrogen, estrogen replacement therapy in patients who have significant atrophic vaginitis and significant stress urinary incontinence. You would um, do that pre-op to help build up those tissues or? Pre-op and post-op. And post-op. Right. And another complication is uh, I always get asked by the residents, well, how do you know? How do you know that you're putting enough tension on the sling at the time of the surgery uh, to uh, make sure that the patients do not develop another common, well, not anymore, but uh, unnecessary complication of urinary retention? And, and I tell them um, that. The best way is to make sure that you avoid putting excessive tension and you err on the side of leaving a little bit of laxity on the sling. And then I use the example and I, I show the, the residents, uh, the patient's orientation. At the time of the surgery, the patients are in supine position with their legs up in the lithotomy position. And so when we place the sling at the time of the surgery and when we pull it up, we think that we are actually pulling it up. But in fact, we are not. If you, if you imagine the patient during the awake time will spend probably 95% of their time in an upright posture rather than in supine position. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So 
Once we place the sling, when the patients are awake and active, you have to rotate the angle by about 90 degrees. So when we are pulling up on the sling at the time of the surgery, when the patients are in upright posture, we are actually pulling the sling forward, not upward. Do you see what I'm, do, do, you, do you visualize that? I, I can visualize what you're talking about, yeah. So, so um, it is very important to remember that we are essentially pulling the urethra forward you know, when we are doing this type of sling surgeries. So it is important for people to remember that it's when the patients are in upright posture, their weight that falls on the bladder and the urethra is already gonna add to the pressure anyway. So usually uh, when I place the sling, I always emphasize that you leave plenty of space between the urethra and the sling. You don't want to see visible indentation of the urethra caused by the sling. I'd rather actually see one or two centimeters or sorry, one or two millimeters of free space. So you can place the right angle easily and then move it easily without any tightness under the urethra. That's the best way to avoid uh, one of the common and unnecessary uh, complication, which is a urinary retention. Probably one of the worst uh, complications that I've seen was associated with um, the very beginning stage of single incision uh, sling procedures. And, um, you know, there was a rash of uh, patients who came in with an anchoring uh, device or portion of the, the, the single incision sling actually protruding into the trigone of the bladder. So um, it was actually penetrating through the wall of the bladder into the trigone of the bladder. And those things are very, very difficult to remove and um, oftentimes require additional surgeries. So, um, and there could be other, uh, you know, um, common side effects associated with the surgery. Um, we talked about the local pain. Is it in the vaginal? or suprapubic if you do suprapubic approach or in the, uh, um, in the, uh, the obturator, uh, trans-obturator areas. So those local pains usually do um, go away within first three months. Rarely they last more than three months, but you know, it's a very major problem because people have these type of surgeries for the quality of life. And if they're bothered by pain, for three months, you know, that's a uh, you know, major setback for many of these patients. We had a comment by Dr. Lin uh, talking about your, the spacing that uh, you should leave space for a pair of males that fit between the urethra and the sling. This helps prevent retention. Is that kind of what you meant by the millimeter distance? Yeah, actually, uh, so, so it's kind of hard to explain how I show my uh, residents how much tension to put or not put on uh, the, uh, the urethra when they place the sling. And um, I essentially tell them that you place the sling there, but don't apply any tension on the urethra because it will stay there and it will provide back support when the patients are you know, in upright posture. And so um, you don't necessarily have to put any visible or you know, tension that you can feel at the time of the surgery. And one of the thoughts I was reading some of the questions coming through, and this is a, a one that made me think of one of the reasons that's your dynamics, I think can be helpful 
is patients will go in for incontinence surgery for stress incontinence, but could have underlying urgent continence. And your operation isn't going to correct the urgent continence. And I think that it's uh, the, the thought is to come out and they say, you didn't make me better. I'm still leaking. How do you handle that? Oh, that, that is an excellent question because um, that, that, is, uh, that is the reason why you always have to keep in mind that sometimes, even if you ask the same patients multiple times in different ways, it may be really hard to extract that information, whether there may or may not be an urge component. But if you're persistent, um, I think that you can actually, in most of the times, uh, you will be able to uh, detect uh, presence of both stress and urge component. But you're right. You know, if you fix one problem and leave the other problem, there will continue to be a problem. And so patients will consider that as a, um, as a failure. But in reality, um, it's not really a failure, is it? Because, you know, say for example, um, if I see a patient, then let's say um, I actually detect that there's definitely a stress component and there is urge component. And I will always make a point of saying, you have two problems and we can take care of one of the two problems with a surgery, but the other problem, you will still need to have a treatment for a separate treatment for overactive bladder symptoms. You really need to give the proper expectation to the patient. You know? if, you, if you suspect that a patient has mixed incontinence, do you, try the anticholinergic just to see if that helps the one component and to see how bad the other one is? Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you asked that question. When a, when a person has uh, mixed urinary incontinence, then usually I try to see if we could actually resolve the overactive bladder symptoms first. And the way I do that is um, I tell the patients to... Uh, initiate dietary modification. Number two, uh, if they're willing, um, I also recommend, you know, they have an option of using medical therapies in conjunction with dietary modification. And um, meanwhile, while they're, they're treating uh, the overactive bladder symptoms, I give them detailed information about pelvic floor exercise. Because I mentioned earlier today that I usually have my patients uh, try least invasive options first. So in the cases of mixed urinary incontinence, it's a perfect setting where I ask them to um, uh, make some dietary changes and use anticholinergics to see how they respond for to overactive bladder treatments. But that gives them time to also initiate pelvic floor exercise and see how well they respond to the treatment. But at the same time, I, I provide uh, information that you know, um, we have to be realistic. Pelvic floor exercise is a great thing, even if it, you know, doesn't reduce uh, the incontinence uh, by a great margin. At least, uh, you know, if it has 20 to 40% chance of, you know, significant improvement of stress incontinence, I think it's worthwhile trying. So before I necessarily take the patients to the operating room for anti-stress incontinence surgery, Usually I try to uh, manage the overactive bladder symptoms and tell the patients to initiate pelvic floor exercise regimen and then get together after about six to eight weeks. Yeah, great, great thought. Um, got questions coming in like crazy here. 
Uh, do you do a three-day voiding diary and a pad weight? Um, I don't do the, the pad weight and I don't do um, the voiding diary in that setting. I do use voiding diaries. I think they're very important and they give us great amount of information in other settings, but for placement of a stress urinary, for treatment of stress urinary incontinence, I routinely don't use um, voiding diary. And we have another question. Sometimes they have stress-induced urgency with incontinence and the surgery does fix that. Your thoughts on that? They could have- Yeah, um, yeah I, I think that that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, that's a very subtle finding. You know, you, you have to have a really good urodynamic nurse. Uh, oftentimes, um, you know, uh, now that Vic doesn't do the urodynamic studies, um, I actually take every single urodynamic uh, uh, tracing and I go through them myself. And uh, in order to pick the, uh, the urgency and urgent continence triggered by stress, now that's something that is really kind of very subtle finding that is hard to pick up on regular urodynamic findings. But, uh, but I do agree, you know, because there's enough data that shows that uh, if a person has mixed urinary incontinence and uh, if you do um, suburethral sling procedures, small number of people with urgency and urgent incontinence will report that they have less overactivity of the bladder. So I think that'll be consistent with what the uh, uh, what your um, the comment you know referred yeah. to. And have, you've done male slings in the past, correct? Oh yeah, I mean that's um you know I do uh, male slings and um, um, artificial urinary sphincters for some other patients. So our question we have is, how long do you think the male slings will last? Well, that is a good question. Uh, you know. Um, now that I've been in practice for 20 some years, um, I do have patients who have had um, sphincters. Um, and on average, if a person gets uh, about 10 to 12 years out of uh, artificial urinary sphincter, um, I think that that's pretty decent. And so, you know, now I'm kind of doing my, in some patients, my second or third uh, replacement of artificial urinary sphincters. You know, I do have to say that um, I haven't done too many repeat slings. So in, in some ways, uh, that's not surprising because, you know, sling is like female slings. You know, I've done female slings for a long time and I usually tell the patients with pretty decent confidence that, you know, for many patients, it's a one-time surgery. You know, uh, it's not something where people come in later because it didn't work. Oftentimes when the patients come back and say, doc, your sling is not working anymore. And when I talk to them, it's actually not the recurrence of stress incontinence, it's emergence of urge incontinence. And so many patients who come back after 10 years or longer saying that the sling's no longer working, oftentimes I find that, that slings are still working and it's the new problem with urge incontinence. And it's kind of similar with male, uh, you know, slings. Uh, compared to the number of patients that I see after having artificial urinary sphincter placement, I see far less people who come back with recurrent problems after having a male sling procedure. And I think that male sling procedure is a great, great option for many people 
who have uh, much, much less degree of stress incontinence. And, uh, you know, um, typically my uh, criteria is pretty consistent with uh, what's been, uh, you know, uh, reported in the literature. Usually if a person says, you know, I get by with one to three pads, one to two pads, you know, a day, but I, I seek um, even greater uh, control. Those are patients who will definitely benefit from male swing surgeries. Yeah. I found observational data that, you know, women will tolerate a little bit of incontinence far more than men will tolerate a little bit of incontinence. It seems like, uh, you know, women will just wear a pad and not complain so much about it. But a lot of these post-radical prostatectomy patients, the number one concern is I'm leaking urine. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I cannot give you exact details, but I do remember when I was a chief resident, when our new attendings came from uh, another institution and they were doing uh, anonymous uh, patient surveys and they were really surprised by um, how many people actually did report stress urinary incontinence after having radical prostatectomies. And uh, according to some previous studies, uh, looking at the quality of life uh, questionnaires, um, it actually, the, the, uh, the, the stress urinary incontinence was ranked as bad as death itself, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah it, is, it is definitely very devastating uh, in terms of uh, their impact on the quality of life for, you know, for men. Well, this has been fascinating. I, I think uh, a lot of the questions coming in are very similar to things that we've answered in the past. So I'm not going to go through them all. Um, but hey, thanks from our audience, our live audience that threw all these questions out there. I think we had some really great discussion. Um, I like this format, just kind of chatting about the subject. It was really great. Um, your expertise was well, well appreciated. Um, sometime again, if you want to join us for another chat, we'll be glad to host you again. It was great. All this right. time well, we know we'll get you on quicker. <laughs> well, thank you for your invitation. Thank you very much. All righty. So we did get through our Q&A here. I'm going to switch over here so I can finish up my talk. Uh, thanks for everybody for coming out. It's been a really great talk. I do want to pitch next week's talk. It's going to be a little different. We're going to get away from a strictly urology subject, but one I think a lot of people have got a lot of curiosity about and one that I've been doing quite a bit, and that's artificial intelligence. There's a couple of big programs out there that I've been using the, the heck out of called ChatGPT and MidJourney. And I'm going to tell you what it is, what it can do, talk a little bit about what some of the dangers are of it. But uh, I think there's a lot of uses that we can find it in our day-to-day -day practice. Um, so tune in for something different than a straight urology, but a little technology never hurts. And with that, again, if you're uh, still dying to hear more about this subject and you want to sit and chat uh the after parties button over on the euronurse.com will take you into a, a standard uh zoom meeting again thanks for those that helped out with this the testing us that new software that i'm looking at uh but this will take us just right back into a meeting we can all sit and chat so feel free to hit that after party button and for the rest of you that want to go out and enjoy this day here are Weather in Chicago, well, in Indiana anyway, we got uh, about six inches of snow last night, but it's getting sunny and warm and it's melting. So I don't have to bother shoveling. I just stay home and watch it melt. But everybody have a great day. 
Again, I do appreciate having everybody from the panel join us again for this great discussion on slings. And we look forward to next week's discussion. Have a good day, everyone.